If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's Word tonight, uh, Law and Limitations. Law and Limitations. Three things we'll look at tonight, uh, freedom, faithful, and flawed. Freedom, faithful, and flawed. Now Paul begins uh, in the first section here uh, letting us know that, uh, that we have this law we have the law, and then he's got some other points here, I think, uh, that illustrate kind of the full extent of the law he's speaking of. But he illustrates that uh, prior to salvation, uh, we're in a binding relationship, if you will, to the impact of the law on our life. Uh, it's kind of like, a, um, in a sense... Before you come to Christ, the law kind of hangs over you like a dark cloud or a pall of uh, death. Uh, and at the same time, it's, and that's not all it does. There's the positive effect of the law that we'll look at uh, under faithful because Paul says, hey, the law also illuminated for me what covetousness was. So he gives a, an express example. And uh, so the law even though it uh, shines a light on where we're really at, uh, the weight of it is quite heavy. Uh, and a lot of people don't recognize consciously the weight they feel. Um, but, you know, many people uh, have said the same thing when they have become born again. They'll say something to this effect. It felt like a weight came off of me. You ever heard that? A lot of people feel that way. They, they, they really feel like some tangible weight had come off of them. Uh, you know, and you, you look in Pilgrim's Progress and the burden that's carried, and, and a lot of that weight is the fact that uh, we're born into a relationship with sin that we can't separate from it. Right? It, it's, we're born in sin, we're stuck in that condition, and uh, we are fall under the full weight of the law. And then Paul gives the illustration that when Jesus comes, we have this new marriage relationship that takes place. And in using this illustration, he talks about the fact that uh, this uses the illustration of a woman and a husband and wife, but the woman who's married and, and her husband dies. And when the husband dies, now we know that uh, certainly under the law of Moses, uh, if the husband were to die, then yes, uh, the woman could be remarried. Uh, but if, um, if you think about it, really death brings the end to just about any kind of contract, right? I mean, even if you uh, owe your credit card company X amount of money, if you die, you're no longer responsible for it, right? It, it kind of brings an end to the requirements. And in this case, even though death brings uh, an end to all contracts, uh, the specific example here is speaking to the fact that this marriage relationship is a parallel to the fact that if we're in this kind of binding, can't get out of uh, our propensity to sin, and then on the fact that we can't stop sinning, on top of it, we feel the guilt of that, and then Jesus comes along and he says, I'll let you die to that, and I'll, I'll bring you into a marriage relationship with me. Now, in the ancient Greek, um, you also have this concept here where it talks about the, uh, the law. You'll see a couple of times in the first couple of verses where it mentions the law. Uh, in the actual ancient Greek of this text, there's not a the in front of law. So it just reads law, not the law. It just reads law. And I believe this speaks, I'm not the only one that believes this, but I believe this speaks to the broader revelation uh, to all of mankind. Clearly, Paul is writing of Mosaic law, but he's not writing, I believe, exclusively of Mosaic law. We know he's writing of the law of Moses uh, when he speaks of the law saying, you shall not covet, because we know that's one of the Ten Commandments. Those were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So that is Mosaic law. But uh, the fact that there's not a the here, uh, the fact that we can just refer to it as law, 
I believe this speaks to the broader revelation uh, to mankind of God's law revealed through nature or creation and the conscience. Remember, Paul talked earlier in the book of Romans about the conscience and the fact that uh, the conscience is a law unto itself, uh, that people, you know, I was um, once again getting my hair cut today, uh, well, actually a lot of them, but, um, and uh, the girl that was cutting it, you know, we got to talking and I, and, and we were talking about current events, which a lot of times I'll use as an entree into sharing the gospel or talking about, and, uh, you know, we, she was, uh, we were talking about just current events and a couple, a couple of the just out, unbelievable stories that are in the headlines right now, right? And you're, you're like, uh, and I said, I told her, I said, it's not that, it's not that these people don't have a conscience, because the scripture is clear that everyone has a conscience, but the Bible makes it clear that that conscience has been seared over time. And, uh, you know, and, you know, she kind of had her own description. Yeah, I think I understand. You know, it's got, it's kind of been covered over or calloused. I said, exactly. Over time, it becomes calloused. I said, but, but that doesn't alleviate that individual from the weight of it. And even if they don't feel the weight, if they die in that condition, they'll feel the weight, right? When you stand before a holy God, the weight will be there. So that, to die in that condition, you don't want to die in that marriage relationship. Amen. In other words, married to the consequences of a fallen world. You're, you, you are born married to the consequences of a fallen world. You're in wedlock, if you will, Paul says. You're in wedlock to the fallen world. If you die in that condition, it's a big, big problem. It's an eternal problem. If Jesus comes and takes you to himself, you're now married to another, and that relationship dies, and now you've been made alive to this new relationship which has a totally different outcome, doesn't it? And so that is the condition of all of us. Our conscience uh, can see truth. We can see truth in creation, and we certainly can see truth through God's written word, including the Ten Commandments and everything that's built on the Ten Commandments, even namely back to the two great commandments. But even the material world, when you think about it, um, everything is in an endless cycle. People are in an endless cycle of futility and frustration, right? But so is the material world as well. I mean, the, the physical, con- I mean, the, the people condition, um, you know, we, we can look and see that throughout all of history, wars keep coming back, right? Death keeps coming back not just through natural causes, but through man killing man, destroying each other. War keeps coming back. Death keeps coming back. Peace accords are are destroyed and ripped up uh, on a regular basis. Divorces, everything keeps... There's this perpetual... uh, Even the scriptures talk about from the second and third generation, sin passed down the line, and we continue to see this repetitive cycle of death and destruction and this cycle of failure, you know, Government after government trying to, well, we're the smart ones, we'll get it right, right? And then the next group will get it right, and then the next group will get it right, but really no one gets it right, because it's continually, they're married to the fallen condition of the world, which has no recipe for success. In the material world, the same way, and, you know, we know that the second law of thermodynamics, that you know, things are actually wearing down. If there was something was spun up, even, you know, even scientists who aren't believers in God look at the universe and they know that someone wound it up, but that begs the question, why is it winding down? And we see that everything is coming to a place of wearing down or wearing out. Paul will later speak of creation. He says it in the sense that creation is groaning. And he'll later mention that as we go through our study, that creation itself is groaning. But when we got saved, those of you, and I presume all of you, but uh, when we got saved, we died to the law. Not so much uh, the truth of the law, that actually is written on the tablets of our heart. What we died to was the burdening weight of it. We died to the burdening weight, and, and we've now find our freedom. Everyone likes freedom? 
I mean, our country, uh, our country talks about freedom a lot more than other countries, right? It, it's a hallmark of the United States that it was built on freedom, I, and you would argue, and, and I would agree with you, there's been times where there's been loss of freedom and, and different people not given freedom, but the nation has been, for the most part, compared to any other nation in world history, uh, freedom has been quite unique here. So we understand the value, or, or most people do, and certainly I wish all should and would understand the value of freedom, but there's no freedom like the freedom in Christ. All other freedoms uh, pale in comparison. We've been married, as Paul says here, married to another. Our freedom comes where? Well, it comes through the grace and through the mercy of the cross. That's where the freedom is given through grace and mercy. Our marriage relationship to Christ through salvation. And then that relationship, that grace and mercy through which this freedom has come, it cancels out the inevitability and the requirements of the law. You know, the requirements of the law are perfection. This is why Jesus came, because somebody, somebody had to live a life that actually achieved the perfection of the law. And there's only one man that could do it, Jesus Christ. No one else, no one else could actually do what he did and actually meet every single jot and tittle perfection of the law but the Lord Jesus Christ. So the requirement of the law is perfection, but nobody can, uh, nobody can achieve that. We're constantly reminded of our imperfections, aren't we? You know, they come in the simplest of ways, right? Just when you think you're really coordinated, the couch jumps out in front of you, out of nowhere, right? Just when you think that uh, you're really good at math, you realize you didn't balance the checkbook or whatever else. I mean, there's always things that remind us, and those aren't sins, much less, I mean, those are just stumbling because we're human beings, but much less how short we fall of the perfection of God. But these things, Jesus gives us through grace and mercy, this freedom uh, when we come to him, and the inevitability and the uh, requirements of the law, he places us into, instead of this binding contract for the fallen world, he exchanges that for a covenant of eternal salvation. A covenant which is actually fully secured by God himself through the work of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about, you know, the Lord is never going to cast us out. He'll hold on to us. Now, now if you say, I want out, right? It's just, like in a, it's just like in a marriage where two people come together, and they come together and they say, I, I commit myself. I don't know about you, but I have seen in my lifetime... Marriages where one spouse desperately wanted to stay in the marriage, the other spouse said, I, I don't care, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Bye. See ya. Right? There's no, you can't convince them. And in, in, in a sense, uh, our relationship with God, he offers a covenant relationship, but people can reject that covenant relationship. But he'll never revoke it. He'll never re That's why we have the security of the saints. He's not going to revoke salvation I would have to tell him I want out of this, which none of us should ever be foolish enough to do. Amen? That uh, we have received the, this gift of great price, this freedom that costs God everything. But this freedom we've been given, and so no longer having this weight of the contract of a fallen world upon our shoulders, this is why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, or hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what Paul's saying. He's like, he's like the strength of sin is in the law. No one. The law shows it's like an iron rod. No one can keep it. But thank Jesus, the victory's been accomplished through him. He kept it. He 
fulfilled it. He wiped out the requirements. And so we now serve as he goes on uh, in verses uh, six uh, or five and six here. Uh, before, before we were saved, uh, verse five, we're in the flesh. The sinful passions which arouse in the law uh, were at work in our members to bear the fruit to death. We see this all the time. Um, the actions of one individual eventually lead to more sin, which leads to more sin, which leads to more, and then eventually there's death. And we can see it, you know, visibly. Someone ends up in a family dying, uh, and you say, wow, it's so tragic that they died that way. Oh, yeah, if you, if you heard the story, you know, how, how they used to kind of be a totally different person, but then their family uh, blew up, the parents split apart, uh, everyone kind of went their own way, and then, you know, they just kind of spiraled downward, and we see that those kind of things give rise to death, and that's just a, a, an example that we could show in the thousands and the millions in our own country. But all of us, before we came to Christ in verse 5, all of us, the work that we did in our flesh was always fruit to death. It was always, uh, it was always adding to the death sentence that would be pronounced if we were to die in our sins at the great white throne judgment when everyone will give an account for everything they've ever said, done, or even thought. That fruit will be everlasting, eternal, perpetual death. But we see the death that it brings even now. Um, you know, you think about in America where we've killed 55 million plus babies. And almost all of them, I'm sure there's exceptions. I understand when people say, uh, well, even, good night, you can't, there's really no exception because even if you say things like rape, well, that starts with sin, which is fruit unto death. That's some, that, another person's sin leads to the fruit unto death. But, you know, if you look at 55 million abortions in the United States and you can trace them back to every single one of them, someone has made a sinful decision. Why? Well, they're born in sin. I'm not saying this to condemn. If anyone here has ever had an abortion and you're now saved, you've been forgiven. It's all under the cross. Praise the Lord for that, right? Uh, so this is not a, a, a word of condemnation uh, we've all done things we could wish we could go back and redo the past, but you can't. But it still doesn't uh, change the fact that 55 million abortions in our country can be traced to at least, and this is a short list, at least 55 million other sins. Correct? But it's actually usually a lot more than that. There was covetousness involved. There was greed involved. There was selfishness involved. There was pride involved. There was lust involved. So it's actually a cornucopia of sins bring millions and millions of living examples of death. Thankfully, living in heaven today. Isn't that great? Because God still always is gracious, even in the midst of this fallen world in which we live. And look at verse 6, though. But having been delivered from the law, we were in that contract to a fallen world, having been delivered from that into the marriage relationship with Christ. If you're here, the reason why Paul refers to the, uh, the fact that the mystery of Christ in the church, not just husband and wife, but literally, uh, I am married to Jesus Christ. How about you? And it's good to be reminded of that time. That's why we, this Sunday, will we will, even though it's Mother's Day, I pushed it back a week because of, uh, because of having uh, Camps Crusade, the Jesus film with us on Sunday. But this Sunday, we will partake, as Jesus asked us to do, in the Lord's Supper. Why? We want to be reminded of that marriage relationship in which we are in. That's not the only way we're reminded, but it's important to know it, that because of that marriage relationship, we have been delivered from the law, in verse 6, that we should now serve in newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. We, before Christ, we were already serving something. And the, matter, the fact of the matter is, we will always be serving something. If you're here tonight, and you're saved, but you are in a lukewarm state, you're still serving something. It won't be Christ, but you'll be serving something. If you're unsaved, you're serving something. There's no one on planet Earth that is at least thinking as an adult 
Uh, I, this is not true of, uh, well, even maybe an infant. An infant is serving, when is my next meal, right? You know, that kind of thing. But, but in the sense that we become cognitively aware of what we're doing, we're all serving something. And Paul says, now you've been brought into this relationship to serve in the newness of the Spirit. That's totally different because when we served our flesh, we had not the Spirit of God. We had, we had the mindset of the spirit of this world, right? Satan and his continuous offerings of temptation to all of planet Earth. We had the mindset of serving whatever, and everyone has a different flavor. What your sin was was different than somebody else's is. It might just be pride alone and just achieving and reaching the top and, and showing everybody how smart and intelligent and powerful and all this stuff. And other people's may be completely different. It just might be pleasure, Epicurean style. Eat, drink, or tomorrow we die. And there's people that live that way. And that's why young, you know, young people uh, are sometimes are committing suicide now. They've done that. It's not fulfilling. And they say, what's there to live for? We've tried this. Did all that. But now we serve in newness. The scriptures tell us that Christ makes all things new. All things new. We can't make anything new because I already said that the the world is atrophying. It's not becoming new. It's becoming old. It's wearing out. Whereas Jesus makes all things new, including uh, us. Are you serving Christ in newness tonight? It's a good question to ask you. Are you serving in newness? And not just newness, newness in the Spirit. Walking in the Holy Spirit. There's power in the Spirit. There's comfort in the Spirit. There's wisdom in the Spirit. There's peace in the Spirit. There's understanding in the Spirit. Right? There's conviction in the Spirit because you know, you, you're about to kind of wander off. And, and the Lord, uh, thankfully, He has this shepherd's staff with a hook. Pulls us back in line. And not, not even from, from uh, you know, kind of heavy-duty sins. But even the ones that are just grumbling and complaining. I, I was guilty of that one today earlier, and the Lord knocked on my heart. There was something I was complaining about in my spirit. And I happened to just for a moment read something from Oswald Chambers, and I read something from Charles Spurgeon, and, uh, and I got like spiritually spanked by both of them. And they're not alive anymore. Well, they are alive. They're alive in heaven. But I mean, they're not on the earth. And it was good for me. I don't know about you, but I like God to tell me, knock it off. How about you? I really like that. Because when I do, I immediately... uh, When you're complaining, are you really happy? No. You got a bone to pick with somebody, and sometimes it's with the Lord. Right? Right? But as soon as you kind of yield it up and say, you're back to newness again. You're like, why am I worried about this? Turn this over. Are you serving in newness in the freedom from the world's hold? A lot of people can't, they can't stop themselves from things that they know produce continued emptiness in their life and they still keep trying the same thing. I told you last time, you know, when we were here, uh, our, our friend down in South Florida, when we were still unsaved, the mother, and man, every time, she, no matter how much she had, depressed, it was another shopping spree. It just never worked. Are you walking in the freedom of the power of the Holy Spirit? There's freedom in be, being given power from God as opposed to try and create it yourself. By the way, I personally, I, I hope you would say the same. But I can really look at my entire life now of being saved since 1995 and go back and say, wow, if I look at the span of my life, times where I was having you know, some measure of success versus you know, a, a really fun event or all these things, but I can truly say that I'm never more alive and feel more free than when I'm serving God and his people. I mean, when you really think, when you really start to think through, um, you, you have a hard time, the longer you're saved, writing, my greatest moment was when I was laying on the beach at so-and-so. 
You know? You start to realize that those things are very fleeting. It's not that we don't need rest sometimes, and, and I treasure the opportunity to get away and rest sometimes. That, those things are good, but you'll realize that freedom and being alive is when we're in the presence of God doing his work, serving. Because this is what Paul is saying here. He says that we should serve. It's not just waiting on the Lord. It's waiting upon the Lord. Right? Think of a waiter, right? You've all been to a restaurant? Yes, they're waiting on you to make up your mind on the menu. That's true. They come by four times. You made up your mind yet? No, we're still looking. All right, we'll keep waiting. That kind of waiting they're doing, we do that through prayer with God. We do that kind of waiting. We're waiting for the Lord to answer or deliver or something else. But we don't just wait like sit down Indian style and say, God, let me know when you've answered this. In the meantime, we're waiting back and forth serving him. You get the point? That we're doing two kinds of waiting. We're not just waiting on him, but we're waiting upon him. And that's what Paul is saying. He goes, you've been saved, not just as a marriage, uh, and think about this in the marriage relationship. Because you're now married unto Christ, are husbands called to serve their wife? Of course. Wives called to serve their husband? Yeah. Jesus said, guess what? You used to serve the world. Now you're married to me. Now you serve me. But you're free. But I'm serving. Yeah, you're free from sin. But I'm serving. Yeah, you're free from hell. But I'm serving. Yeah, you're free from the weight of guilt. But I'm serving. You were created to serve. What are you talking about? Go back to Genesis. Before there was sin, Adam was already tending the garden. So this is an important thing, but now we're serving it, not just serving it. We would, we would fail and give up and throw in the towel, but we're serving in the Spirit, and the Spirit makes all things fresh. That's why Jesus said, out of you would flow rivers of living water, because the Spirit... Say, If rivers are flowing out of me, where's the source of the water where it would dry up? Well, God has no end. So the source is Him, and therefore... He creates water. Everything else, like if you, if you tap a well, eventually it will run dry, right? And you have to go tap another one. But that's not the way with God. He actually, you tap into God, he creates water out of nothing. So this is the newness that he gives us. Let's look at the last uh, two, faithful. Or look at the next one anyway, faithful. Verses 7 through 12, what shall I say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. And of course, Paul gives the, uh, the commandment of covetousness, or thou shalt not covet, as the example of saying that the law shines a light on sin. Men love darkness rather than light, right? Jesus comes into the world. He not only is the light of the world, but as the light of the world, he is the word. In the beginning was the word. The Word is the law, God's written Word, the Ten Commandments. Wherever Christians are, we shine a light, and a lot of times folks don't like it. You probably didn't like it before you were saved, to have the Christian stuck beside you at work, right? I can't, you know, now that I am a pastor full-time and uh, I'm in my office studying or going to visit some of you in the hospital are doing different things. And, 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 but I still obviously, you know, uh, I still get out with, with uh, those that are still lost and, and want to sh- you know, share the Lord with them. But, you know, if they don't know I'm a pastor, then, uh, they, you know, they're going to say whatever. But when I worked uh, in business, once people knew I knew the Lord, uh, you know, the curse word would come out and the obligatory, excuse my French, to which I would sometimes say, that's not French. I know, I know a little bit of French, and that's not French. Uh, and so that would actually get at least a laugh out of them or something like that. You, well, you know what I mean, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, I know what you mean. But I, wouldn't, you know, I wanted to say, but you don't want to like, you know, let, let, I want to say, but God knows what you mean too. No. <laughs> so, but the law reveals where we're really at 
just like the conscience and creation, they speak to truths that are immutable, but so is the law and the Ten Commandments. And Paul's saying, hey, just because we have died to the weight, uh, the, the requirements that only Jesus could meet, just because we've died to the weight of the law doesn't nullify the validity, the importance, and the effectiveness of the law. No, the law was created not to save anybody. The law was created to show that only Jesus could keep it. However, because only Jesus could keep it, it proves to people that they cannot say before God. They will say it for a long time, and if you get the opportunity to witness some, to someone and you have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them, they'll start out with this train of thought oftentimes, not all the time, but many times people have the train of thought, well, I'm a good person. And Jesus said, well, there's no one good but God. Of course, he, he was God, so he could say that. And people will say, but I'm a good person. When God will say, well, if you're good, now let me put my law next to your life. And it's going to be bad. So, you know, I would, I, when I talk to people, I said, okay. You ever told a lie? You ever thought something you shouldn't have? You ever used God's name in vain? How many times did you do that? Twice in your entire life? Three times? Oh, I lost count. Right. We all have. And so the law shows us that, hey, if that's true, you're not going to be judged by, it's not on a bell curve. Well, here was your really, there's your Adolf Hitler up here, and then over here is, you know, Grandma that uh, the best we can tell is one time, you know, she said snap when she burnt the soup or something like that. The best we know. And Hitler's up here, and on the bell curve, depending on where you fall, God's like a big professor, and he says, all right, I looked at the bell curve, and good news is some of you that got D's are passing grade into heaven. But, I th but a lot of people have that mindset and say, no, but actually the law, the law doesn't, you don't understand, the law doesn't budge. It demands absolute perfection. You can't have any single flaw whatsoever. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Paul tried to, that's verse 10, Paul tried to follow the law, didn't he? Remember, he was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He was convinced that he was righteous and that he was doing God a favor by killing Christians. And it was his job, to, if he had to go to another country, to Damascus, to imprison them, by golly, he was going to do it, because that was going to please God. And his righteousness, he wore on his chest like a badge of honor. And he came to realize that, even in verse 13, that sin was producing death in me, that it was exceedingly sinful. He, he realized, and this is an important thing, when God actually opens up people's eyes to the law, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. When the law of the Lord actually opens people's eyes, they really realize that what they thought were little, petty, not significant sins are absolute deal breakers. And they reveal that we are just lost without hope, without Christ. But you, know, you and I can't convince people of their badness, right? But God can. Was it God that convinced you or another person? It was God. How did he convince you? He did it through his word, which the, the gospel, the law is bound up in the gospel, for all have sinned. We saw this last week in verse 23 of 623. The wages of sin is death, but the, gift of, uh, the wages of sin is death. And we know that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And that short is a mile wide. Proverbs 13, 5 says, The law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Again, the law is like a, it's a big road sign. It turns, it actually reveals to people, just like we get uh, when we're riding down the road 
And uh, there's one of those um, uh, digital speedometer things, right? You're not paying attention. You're eating a Whopper or whatever, and you're just kind of cruising at about 52 and a 35. And then there's one of those little things set up that actually a digital yellow uh, number comes up, and it shows 52. And you're, ooh, ooh, ooh. Break. And it really, you really get sensitive to it when there's a police officer beside that machine. It's really heightened. Like, they didn't already see that you were going 52. And sometimes they're there just to kind of enforce that people slow down. Maybe it's a child area or something like that. But that is a reminder, and this is what the law does. It turns us, and it's Proverbs 13, 5, uh, it's greater than that. It's a fountain of life because it actually shows us, whoa, if the standard was perfection, I just missed it. And you're going to see it again and again and again in your life. First uh, Timothy uh, 1, 8 through 11, this is probably one of the best passages in understanding that um, we that are believers, we do use the law. We do need to explain to people when they say, well, I'm a good person. Uh, you need to explain to them God's standard of perfection. Say, uh, you know, I'm sure compared to other people, you, you probably are. But God will never use your comparison or my comparison or anyone else's. He is going to use perfection. And so you point them to the law and, and they will invariably admit, yeah, I've made those mistakes. We'll say, but God, no one will come into heaven apart from his son Jesus on their own merit. No one will be able to say, well, I only sinned one million times. That's a lot better than everybody else. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. What does that mean? It, the law is not made for those of us who have put our faith in Christ. We actually have the righteousness of Christ applied to us. We're no longer trying to keep the law we're walking in the spirit newness of life. Therefore, when we walk in the spirit newness of life, we do keep the law, but we're not striving to keep it. Make sense? We're keeping it in the Lord as opposed to trying to keep it. But even when we fall, we're covered by his grace and our names were written in the Lamb's book of life. But he goes on, the law was not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, that's in the news right now, for liars, for perjurers, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to this glorious gospel. Now, Paul didn't name every sin on planet Earth there, but to illustrate the point, he wanted to make it clear that these are the type of things that we are born into. And... Some of us were liars, some of us were thieves, some of us were fornicators, whatever it may be. But Paul said, look, the bottom line is the law was for those folks to let them realize they were sinners. And when they did, oh, when they did realize it, remember how compassionate Jesus was to people when they cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner? When you actually had someone caught in adultery, and Jesus could have given her the death sentence, but instead he sees a contrite heart, right? Or he sees that Zacchaeus, who was, really was defrauding people and taking a lot more than he should, and Zacchaeus realizes this is sin, I've been stealing, and Jesus forgives him, right? But the law was still used, even the rich young ruler who didn't realize that he battled. It's interesting that Paul uses covetousness because that is the problem with the rich young ruler. Well, that and idolatry because he loved money more than the Lord God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what did Jesus use with the rich young ruler? He used the law. He said, have you kept the commandments? And of course, he had kept them all from his childhood. Hadn't messed up once, at least according to his own record. And so Jesus said, all right, well, then uh, let's just go ahead and test commandment number 10. 
sell everything you have. And it, we'll, te we'll test commandment one and ten together, because number one is no other gods before me. Number ten is no coveting. Right now, go sell everything you have, and I'll know for fact that your record of zero sins is accurate. And he went away sorrowful. Because the law was held up as a mirror. He looked in the mirror and saw, I don't measure up. And Jesus said, all right, but here's, I'll give you forgiveness, but come on my terms. Wasn't interested. The last aspect of our um, time tonight, this flaw of verses 13 through 25, Paul talks, <laughs> Paul talks through a condition that we, we understand well. We, even though we're saved, even though we are given the power of the Holy Spirit, even though we're seated in the heavenlies, outside of time and space, we're already seated in the heavenlies. I was having this discussion, too, with the, the cow cutting my hair. She was like, uh, she was asking me, well, where do people that before Jesus died on the cross, where do they go? Uh, where do they go? I said, well, they went to paradise. Well, it, was, uh, it was also called Abraham's bosom. And there was a gulf fixed between. You had hell on one side, and you had paradise or Abraham's bosom there. And eventually Jesus, after he died, he goes down uh, and brings leads captivity, he takes and brings the saints of old that actually put, trait, they put their trust in the future Messiah, the future Emmanuel that they knew God had promised all the way back to the garden. And uh, they believed on the finished work of Christ before it had ever been finished. I said, but the irony of it all is it had been finished because the Bible says that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. And I said, well, that, that's a mind bender. I said, it is. Because God lives outside of time. Heaven's outside of time. And so inside of time, we still have this battle that we have, that we have the Holy Spirit in us, and yet we are still flawed. Because you would think, all right, well, if I got saved, and now I've received the righteousness of Christ, then I shouldn't sin anymore. And I bet everyone here messed up today, right? You had a moment where you were a little prideful. You had a moment where you complained or murmured. You had a moment where you thought you deserved more than you got, whatever it was. And Paul talks about this. He's like, in verse uh, 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I don't practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will to do, I agree with the law that it is good, but now it is no longer I to do it, but sin that dwells in me. And you guys know I, um, I love verse 18, for I know that in me. I don't love it because it's factual. <laughs> I don't love it because it's experiential. I love it because it reminds us that there really is nothing redeeming about us, which is why we cling to the Lord. For I know that in me that is my flesh, nothing good dwell. For the will is present. How many find that the will is present to do what is right and you still sometimes don't? Let me, make that, let me back that up. You most times don't. The will is there. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In this flawed condition, uh, I don't know. I know that many people have written about it. I don't know that I'll ever understand it other than God has us work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and to work it out to constantly be reminded of grace, that you are saved by grace, that not of yourself, it's the, it's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. It's constantly reminding us of grace. It's what should keep every pastor humble in a pulpit, because even when you stand up and you've confessed every single known thing, there still may be something that you didn't know, right? We've all been there, right? And the emphasis of our walk in Christ is no known sin. And yet, we'll start the day with no known sin, but by about noon, we have some known ones. And we restart the process over again. And around two, we restarted, you know, we kept hitting the restart button, but God, in it, right, he's making everything new. It's working out an eternal weight of glory in us. 
I know that it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Paul's saying, you know, the bottom line is God seems, this was the same case with the children of Israel. They came to the, to the land of Canaan. You know, if you're here for our men, Billy did a great job of, you know, uh, characterizing again, Canaan, and I'm and 100% agree with him, Canaan was never a picture of heaven. Canaan was a picture of the Christian life, that you would come into the Christian life and you would have the newness like the land of Canaan was a new land, you would have the newness and the freedom that comes in Christ, but yet, even in Canaan, you had Philistines constantly nipping at your heels. Right? And God didn't remove everybody. You had different, uh, different groups around that were constantly a thorn in the side, and you and I have the sin nature that's constantly a thorn in the side, which one of the reasons God has it, so we would yearn for heaven all the more. So you would become, you know, you, you not only have the thorn in the flesh, which we don't even know what exactly if Paul's was spiritual or physical, but uh, it's probably a combination of both, <laughs> but uh, you get them both, don't you? You have the spiritual thorns in the flesh, and you have the physical thorns in the flesh. And both come from the same fallen world, don't they? Thorns, thistles, skinned knees, and also just kind of those sins that you... You keep nailing, boy, if I nail this one to the cross one more time, there's not another hallmark on the cross, Lord. Right? And you keep nailing it back up there, and the good I will to do, I, uh, I will to do, I don't do, and the evil I do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Um... This is, uh, be clear though, this is not, um, this is not living uh, in the same life of the gratitude of the flesh. This is more than anything, I believe, Paul, this is more than anything, the battle of the mind, the, the battleground of the will, that um, <clears throat> we still, you know, Paul was no longer, let's think about it, Paul was no longer... Uh, handcuffing Christians anymore. Man, I, I don't want to handcuff them, and there I went and handcuffed ten more. Right? He's no longer at the same honky-tonk or whatever. You know, that, Paul didn't do that because he was actually a religious zealot, but you know, somebody else, that would be their thing. You know, Peter talks about the fact we've spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. You know, most of the, most time, you know, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, old things are passed away. You'll actually sweep out most of, and I won't say all, most of the worldliness is swept out by the Lord, and then you battle obedience, diligence, right? Paul, I, I wanted to stay and pray another hour, and I, my flesh was too weak, right? And, and it's not just that, but I mean, you battle in the mind, the thought life, all these different things, and complaining, all the th same things that the children of Israel battled, and we find that it's a war, isn't it? And that's why I continue to uh, draw your attention to um, this. I, I love the little booklet, The Blessed Life, and he talks about uh, claiming Christ's virtue of your own, and, and uh, in hours of temptation, thy purity, in hours of weakness, thy strength. You have to simply keep calling upon the Lord. It's not it's not more complicated than that. It is looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. So when you say, Lord, I need your help. Help me say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. God will answer that prayer. He really will. Um, but yet we continually realize that grace has been given to us. It's why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am, not was, chief. Paul would continue to look at himself because he would see himself not compared to the average Joe in the church. He saw himself compared to Jesus. And so Paul would realize that no matter how much he did, he still could look back and see wasted opportunities that day, a spirit of laziness over here, you know, a spirit of jealousy, envy, strife, and yet 
yeah, he would put them to death, but he, re- but he still had done them. And he didn't want to do them. I don't know about you, but you know, when you run saved, you didn't wake up thinking, thinking, man, I hope I don't sin at least once today. You didn't think about that. You didn't think in those, well, most of us, some of you might have, but most of us thought in terms of, what can I do to have a good time? Right? That was the way you thought about it. You didn't think, and your thought process was more like, as long as I'm not bothering anybody else, as long as I'm not bothering anybody else, then what am I really hurting and harming? But then, when you get saved, God puts this desire that you care about that stuff. All of a sudden, you care about things that you're not doing the same stuff, and you still care that, Lord, I got really bothered. You know, so-and-so said something, and I, I didn't say anything, but I wanted to. They, they really got under my skin. And you now are bothered that you feel that way. You're like, man, Lord, I don't want to think that way. And that is this process of keep going back to the Lord Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We know that the heart is always going to be the battleground in our life. We have the victory. We've been freed from the power of sin. We looked at that back in chapter 6. But yet, we still have to continually crucify our flesh. And then, I love uh, 1 John you haven't heard it in a while, I love 1 John 1.8 where it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then He goes on in the second chapter to say, my little children, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Recognizing, John knew it. John said it, John said it a different way. John said, if anyone thinks they have no sin, they deceive themselves. And you've ever met Christians that believe the doctrine that they can actually reach sinless perfection here on earth? Um, I'm like, have you ever read Romans 7 or John 1? 1 John 1? I mean, these were the apostles. They said, nope. If anyone thinks they're sinless, they're deceiving themselves. We're not. We have this battle inside of us, but we keep going back to the throne of G-R-A-C-E. Throne of grace. Throne of grace. Throne of grace. And, and the more you exercise grace, the more it does a purifying work. You'll still go back, but you'll see God shave off the power of this area, shave off the power of this area, shave off the power of this area. Charles Spurgeon said, when we deal seriously with our sins, God will deal gently with us. you agree with that? When we deal seriously with our sins, God will deal graciously with us. But if we deal loosely with our sins, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. But if we deal seriously with our sins, say, Lord, I'm going to cut this off because every time... I just kind of open myself up to this. It, it's, a, it's a snare to me, laying aside every weight and sin that so would easily hinder us. But if we deal seriously with them, God will deal gently with us. And I believe that is absolutely true. And thank the Lord that though we are flawed, He deals gently with us. Amen? Let's close in prayer.